Let's remain standing as we pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the amazing love that you demonstrated in sending the Lord Jesus to die for us, to be our Saviour. That when we were still enemies of yours, uh, Christ died for us. We thank you and praise you for that, and we pray that we would understand better as we uh, look at the Scriptures now, uh, why he suffered, and indeed the great dangers of religion. So please speak to us and teach us, for your name's sake. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, we begin uh, this uh, morning uh, looking at another series, a new series, uh, Matthew chapter 26, uh, through the next couple of chapters as we head towards Easter, and um, through the Easter weekend as well, we'll be looking uh, in the mornings at uh, these chapters. You might like to turn in your Bibles back to uh, the, uh, one of the readings that um, Bernadette read for us, Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. You'll find it on page 997, 997 in the church Bibles. Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Uh, no doubt you'll remember the, the stir caused by Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ uh, when it was released three years ago. I can hardly believe that it was three years ago. And the brutality of the depiction of the physical sufferings of Jesus' crucifixion was, was simply too much for many. The film critic David Edelstein called it Mel Gibson's bloody mess. As we head now towards Easter, we'll be looking at Matthew's description and explanation of the passion of, of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the crucifixion itself, we'll see that unlike Gibson, the Bible doesn't describe in graphic detail the, the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross at all. In fact, it's, it's quite understated. No mention of the size of the nails being driven into the hands. Uh, no mention of blood dripping down the wooden cross. No histrionics at all. Uh, just three words. They crucified him. However, over these next weeks, we'll, we'll see that Matthew does tell us the various and different ways that Jesus suffered. Not just the physical suffering, although he doesn't leave that out, uh, but the other things that he suffered as well. And I want to ask this morning, why might that be? Why does Matthew tell us about the sufferings of, of Christ leading up to the cross? When the uh, Gibson film was the talk of the town, someone asked a friend of mine, why didn't Jesus just die quietly in his bed? Why did he uh, have to die such an horrific death? It's a good question, isn't it? Why did Jesus have to suffer the way he did? Why did he have to die the way he did? And that is a very important question according to Matthew. See, just in, in our section this morning, we'll see that uh, firstly Jesus was rejected by his friends. Look at the end of verse 56, just before our section begins, where we read, All the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. Even Peter, as we'll see next week. Peter, who along with the other disciples, declared back in verse 35, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. A very bold promise. Yet even Peter denied any association with Jesus. Well, we'll look at that next week. But even this week, in verse 58, you see, we see Peter beginning to distance himself from Jesus. And so Jesus had to face his sufferings alone. How hard is that? Suffering without any support from friends. Many of you will know what it is to suffer. And you'll know how much harder it is when friends and loved ones desert you. Jesus had no one. 
Jesus then was rejected by his friends. Secondly, we see Jesus was unjustly judged by the religious leaders. Uh, Matthew tees it up for us in verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus. Now that's plain enough, isn't it? But the details tell us this was a thoroughly illegal court. They met at night and were finished by the morning. But night trials in capital cases were forbidden by the Mishnah. In fact, they, they required at least two consecutive days. And there are other irregularities too. In verse 57, we see that this trial took place in Caiaphas's home. That was irregular. Uh, there's no mention of Jesus being offered a defence lawyer. Of course, they were just trying to catch him out. There's no attempt to discover the truth. So verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Now Don Carson comments on this. Breaches of the law are so numerous as to be almost unbelievable. This trial was grossly unfair and Matthew wants to, us to see that. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of a miscarriage of justice, you'll know the mental anguish of that. Now, did you see uh, on the news this week the story of uh, Ian and Angela Gay, the couple who'd been sentenced to five years imprisonment for murdering their adopted son, Christian Blewett, with, a, with an overdose of salt. Do you remember that story? Their sentence was finally quashed and the couple declared not guilty at a retrial on Friday. It turns out that the uh, little boy had a, a very unusual uh, disease and hadn't been fed salt at all. How must they have felt when they were wrongly imprisoned, wrongly accused? Well, Jesus felt that, but of course far more acutely. Jesus then rejected by his friends, Jesus unjustly judged by the religious leaders and, and thirdly, Jesus was despised by the onlookers. Look at the end of the, the story, verses 67 and 68. Once they've said he's worthy of death, then, verse 67, they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Beaten, struck, taunted and humiliated. God comes among us and what do we do to him? This is a terrible moment in the history of mankind. Men striking their maker. But here's the question. Why this emphasis on Jesus' sufferings? And we'll see it as we go through in these next weeks. Well, let me take you back to the verses immediately before our section. As the authorities, in collusion with Judas, came to arrest Jesus on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, look back to verse 50. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Now those are amazing words in those last, that last verse. Jesus knew that at any point he could walk away from these men. He knew that he didn't have to suffer, that he could destroy these men in a moment because all he had to do was say the word and instantly, verse 53, he would have at his disposal 12 legions of angels. All he had to do was say, Father, send me angels and they would have been there. 
Now what if you realise the might of 12 legions of angels? When you think angels, please don't think Christmas tree decorations. And don't think angelic cherub-type figures that we see in pre-Raphaelite art either. Think back to the Christmas story. The appearance of just one angel caused grown men to quiver and shake. When the heavenly host appeared to the shepherds, they were terrified, sorely afraid. Angels are awesome beings. And here, Jesus says he has 12 legions of them at his disposal. Now, do you know how many many angels there are in the legion? I rang a friend of mine last night to discover. He's the sort of friend who knows these things. Do you know how many angels there are in the legion? He said about 7,000. He's done some work on, on Roman uh, legions. And he reckons about seven. Sometimes they could be as many as 12,000, sometimes only 4,000. So you sort of, he averages it out at about seven. Twelve legions, well you can do the math, 84,000 angels. So what Jesus is saying here is no exaggeration. Just a word from him and he could instantly be delivered from any threat that came his way. Isn't that amazing? Jesus didn't have to suffer at the hands of men but had he taken the angel option verse 54 how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way do you see what he's saying I could avoid suffering I don't have to go this way but if I do how will the scriptures be fulfilled And in case we don't get it the first time, Jesus says it again in verse 56, but this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus knew that he must suffer to fulfil what was written in the scriptures, that the Christ must suffer. And as if to really underline the point, the first thing we read after Jesus said that in verse 56 is, then all the disciples deserted him and fled him. Just as the scriptures said, And it's just what Matthew has told us that Zechariah foretold. See, we can't miss it if we've been reading through Matthew's Gospel systematically because back in verse 31, quoting Zechariah, we read, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, do you see the point? Matthew wants us to see that the suffering of Jesus is fulfilment of the Scriptures and therefore proof that he is the Christ. And we see that right at the heart of this kangaroo court. As the false witnesses came forward and declared, uh, verse 61, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the silence is very significant. Do you know the significance of the silence? Well, look, keep your finger in uh, Matthew 26 and come back with me to that other reading that we had, Isaiah 53, page 740, just to see the significance of the silence. Page 740, Isaiah 53. And here as we look at Isaiah, we'll see... Uh, Well, we'll see how so much of this prophecy is fulfilled in just the few words that we've looked at so far in Matthew. Here is one of the clearest prophecies about the Messiah. 
written 700 years before Jesus. And what do we read? Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. You see, rejected by his friends. Despised so that he was not even given the dignity of a fair trial. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Oh yeah, he was familiar. He had so much of it through his life and not least of all through those last uh, hours of his life. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here was the very Son of God and he was ridiculed and humiliated by the onlookers. Now look down to verse 7 and you'll see the significance of the silence. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. There's the significance of the silence at the trial. Suffering in silence was another mark that Jesus is the Christ. It was predicted. It was prophesied. Do you see then the sufferings of Jesus are proof that he is the authentic Christ. We often get Christ turn up, don't we, uh, from time to time. David Koresh, remember him? Did he ever suffer like this? You can tell he's not the Christ. The sufferings of Jesus are proof that he is the authentic Christ. And yet there is huge irony as we look at Isaiah 53. In fact, there are huge irony, two huge ironies in the passage in Matthew 26. And I'd like to show them both to you this morning. Here's the first. The sufferings of Jesus were proof that Jesus was the Christ. But the religious leaders treated Jesus' sufferings as proof that he was not the Christ. Look at Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Here's the irony. The sufferings are proof that Jesus is the Christ, and yet as Jesus suffered, the religious leaders considered his sufferings as a mark that he was rejected by God. How could the Christ suffer like this? And here's more irony, even that misunderstanding was fulfilment of Isaiah 53 and further proof that Jesus was the Christ. It is dripping with irony, isn't it? Matthew wants us to see, you see, that Jesus' suffering was a fulfilment of the scriptures and the first people that Jesus suffers under are who? The religious leaders who should have known the scriptures Turn back with me to Matthew 26, page 997. And note then what religion without a correct understanding of the scriptures does. Religion without a correct understanding of the scriptures will lead to rejection of the Christ. So you can't miss the point in the detail that Matthew gives us. Once Jesus had been arrested, he was taken to Caiaphas, verse 57, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The entire religious aristocracy are there. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 members plus the high priest. Here was the religious elite and they all missed the point. Jesus' suffering proved that he was the Christ and they all missed the point. And that ought to be a lesson for us today. 
the entire religious establishment can be, dis- it can be gathered and they can completely and utterly reject the Christ. Indeed, when they depart from the scriptures, they will reject the Christ. It's a chilling thought. As the religious establishment of the Church of England meet for General Synod, if they will not be guided by the, by the scriptures, they may well, indeed will, reject the Christ they say they follow. Isn't that chilly? That's the problem with religion. Note the second great irony here. This kangaroo court was looking for false witnesses, as we've discovered already, but, verse 60, they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward. Two witnesses. It's a very important point when we understand it, and again, it is devastating. See, Matthew gives us this detail of the two witnesses because Jewish law states very clearly that that two witnesses are necessary to sentence anyone to death. Uh, You'll find it if you want to chase it up later in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 and chapter 19 verse 15. And so here we see, and listen in well to this if you will, because it's a, a devastating moment. The religious establishment determined to keep the law that declared that two witnesses must be found They're determined to keep that little law and yet they were breaking the law right, left and centre in order to reject the one who gave the law in the first place. They were rejecting the Lord of the law. Jesus has already warned that they would be like that. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 23, if you will. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, page 992. And again we see how religion takes the law of God and twists it and turns it to their, well, to their own ends. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. I love that last line. It's very, very pictorial, isn't it? And you see, that's religion. Jesus doesn't say, don't keep the little laws. He says, just don't hide behind the little laws and ignore the big law. Otherwise, you are straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And that is exactly what goes on, isn't it, in um, in Jesus' trial? They kept the detail of the law. They found two witnesses, because you've got to do that, you see, the law says. They forgot the big point, justice. They forgot the big point, that they were crucifying the Lord of all. Oh yeah, I've forgotten about that. And that again is what religion does for people. Religious people justify themselves by keeping the small laws, all the while ignoring the really big law that matters. Whatever that big law is that matters to them. The typical nominal Christian in Britain does it all the time. They attend church, they think it's terribly important to be honest, an upright citizen, but when they leave church on Sunday, they don't ever think of the one who made the law for the rest of the week. That's what religion does. The religious leaders rejected the Christ, breaking the greatest law in the universe, but they insisted on finding two witnesses 
because that's what the law demands. Friends, let us beware of doing the same. When we are being challenged on something that is huge and yet we justify ourselves because we're keeping little laws, I must be alright because I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Beware of religion. Religion puts aside the scriptures. Religion enables us to justify our sinful, rebellious actions because we keep less important laws. Religion leads us then to despise and reject Christ. And that is such a dangerous position to find ourselves in. And let me close with this. We'll see how dangerous it is uh, to reject the Christ. We've seen how Jesus remained silent when he was accused in fulfilment of the scriptures. But rather than see the significance of the silence, the high priest demanded that Jesus speak. See verse 63. Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So the high priest puts Jesus on oath, obliging him to answer. He he should have stopped there and he thought, why is Jesus not defending himself? He should have remembered Isaiah 53, shouldn't he? He's the high priest, for goodness sake. He knows the scriptures. No, he puts him on oath and obliges Jesus to answer. And at that point, the outcome of the trial is inevitable, isn't it? If Jesus refused to answer, he breaks a legally imposed oath. Jesus cannot deny who he is, for he cannot lie. And the moment he affirms that he is the Christ, the court will call for his head. And we see that's what happens. Because you see, their unbelief, their religion has blinded them. They are unable to see any other possibility. The actual truth that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus finds himself over a barrel. And he answers verse 64, yes, it is as you say. There it is, Jesus declares that he is the Christ, but he is not the Messiah that Caiaphas has in mind. And so notice how he immediately explains his answer. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, Jesus there explains that he is the the Son of Man. The figure of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Yes, he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but he is also the Almighty One. The One who's given all authority and glory and sovereign power. The One whom all peoples and nations will worship. And Jesus says to the court, no, you can't see it now, because you are blinded by your religion. But, verse 64, in the future, you will see me as undisputed king, messiah and sovereign judge. It is a solemn warning for anyone who will not see Jesus as king or treat Jesus as king. It is a solemn warning for religious people who despise and reject Jesus by keeping little laws but won't actually keep the really big law. It is a solemn warning for anyone who is playing around with Jesus pretending to obey him when they're not. He is the Lord Almighty. He has been given complete authority. And not only they, but we will all see him in sovereign power one day. And what is the proof of that? The suffering that he suffered as he led up to going to the cross. Well, let's pray.
We'll have a moment of silence as we make our own response to the living God. And then after a while, Andrew will continue to lead us in our prayers.